Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me. My guest this week is Steve Collins. He's the Executive Director of the African Safari Foundation, an organization that supports communities who have regained lost land that is today set aside for conservation purposes. He's an environmental activist, mediator, and community facilitator. An old friend we met at the University of Natal in the mid-1980s. We chatted about the work of the foundation as well as other projects inside South Africa and across the subcontinent he has been involved in, including a wind farm project up in Kenya that has become a benchmark for such things. We touched on issues around the food-water-energy nexus, um, something I just came across in my reading this morning before we met, um, as well as sort of the challenges we face uh, in terms of sustainability, in terms of our environment, in terms of, as I say, food, energy, and water uh, here in South Africa. So please now enjoy my chat with Steve. So how's it, Steve? Thanks a lot for coming along at short notice. You're welcome. Nice I'm to be here. I'm glad I actually did mention the idea that I did want to interview you. So it's not you're not completely uh, a stopgap. I just unfortunately um, the person I was meant to interview yesterday um, had to postpone it at short notice, and so I, I, I called you in as my emergency backup uh, interview. But I'm looking forward to a good discussion. You're the executive director of. The African Safari Foundation. Correct. You're working yeah. very much in sort of environmental, the environmental sustainability kind of space. Can you just give me a little bit of an idea, and, and the listeners, uh, just a little bit of an idea of what exactly the foundation does? So the foundation um, was uh, started in about 2004. Um, what we do specifically is we work with communities that have reclaimed conservation land in South Africa or that have been given rights to develop tourism opportunities on conservation land in Namibia and Mozambique. And we structure fair deals between them as a community and private sector tourism operators and try and maximize the return to the community so the community sees some benefit from conservation, um, that the tourism operators that are working there uh, are operating within a legal framework which recognizes the rights of the community. So we really we see ourselves as a facilitator. Another part of the wheel, I suppose, is the conservation authorities who are there managing the land. So it's like a three-way partnership, conservation, communities, and private sector, and we're in the middle and we try and help then help them work together. And then a lot of our work now is when communities have set up those businesses with the private sector is helping the communities um, spread the benefits. So when you start receiving money as a trust or a uh, communal property association, where do you spend it in, your, in the community? The need is always much greater than the, the income. And, and that what spending on, on like, um, what, would, what would the discussion be around when it comes to spending? Is it on, on sort of infrastructure or, or it's normally or, yeah, or? yeah no it's normally things like um, something that the whole community would benefit from so okay. for example like a school or a, a community hall or, sports field um, um, every community is different um, that's okay. what I've seen and right, yeah. there was some instances for example in the Makuleke who owned the northern part of the Kruger Park um, 
they spent money on electricity and then government was very embarrassed afterwards saying, well, you shouldn't be spending your money on electricity. It's a government function. Um, and then they, well, they tried to give the money back to the community, the municipality, then stole the money. But so communities generally try and avoid that kind of infrastructure spending because they're not there to substitute government. Yeah, right. Okay. And I realized as I asked that question, it was silly. But um, you say you're operating in Namibia and Mozambique? Yes. But not in South Africa? No, no, in South Africa. No, 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 and and South Africa. Okay, so so in South Africa, it's more where communities have reclaimed conservation land. In Mozambique and in Namibia, it's a different rights framework. So in um, in Mozambique, the government took a conscious decision in the Maputo Special Reserve, which is just north of Ponta de Ora, to give communities, some of whom lived inside the national park, rights to develop a tourism opportunity. Um, but so it's a very different arrangement. In Namibia, it's probably the most progressive of all the countries. There you've got a long-established community conservancy program where communities have rights to, to use land for tourism, for grazing. Um, they're much more involved, I think, in conservation than in many other countries. And why is that so important um, to get those communities in, involved in this whole effort? I think because, um, well, in South Africa, we also got an anomaly because we've got fences around our protected areas, and most of Africa does not have fences. So, uh-huh. so you've got an open system. So communities either are living in the boundary of a, of a proclaimed protected area or outside. They've got access to the system. They are harvesting natural resources. They rely on those natural resources, be it for medicinal plants, be it for bushmeat, be it for uh, um, firewood. So they are they are operating within they're those integrated systems. Integrated into yeah. that, yeah. They're integrated mm-hmm. into it, and sometimes as populations have increased, that's become less and less sustainable. So you you are starting to overharvest those areas. Mm-hmm. So um, as we see it, the more the communities are involved in the management, the more they understand what the impacts are, the more likely they are to protect it um, and see it as their resource, as opposed to what the history in South Africa has been, for example, where protected areas were formed, first of all, as a way to uh, make sure that white people could continue hunting. You know, that's how protected areas came about. It was because It wasn't that, for the conservation of animals for the beauty and sake of r- nature. It was to give people a hunting ground. Yeah, exactly, because they well, basically the shot out everything. And then they realized, oh, well, we better start um, allowing spaces for animals to rebreed. So, so the northern kind of part. It's sustainability in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. And it's, and an it's shifted over years. And exclusive. And, yeah, of course, they're very exclusive. Yeah. And a lot of people were moved out of protected areas um, as part of the homeland system. Right, right, right. Um, and consolidated into homelands, often bounding. Uh, these national parks, mm. um, and then they weren't even allowed to access it because it was that was for white recreational use. Mm. Um, so you have a very exclusionary history. Um, what uh, is called in the what the community of practice offences and fines approach. Um, that's how you would enforce that. You would you would yeah. keep people out through fences or fine people for you coming into the area. So um, uh, you th- that just reminds me, uh, we were at Itala Game Reserve, um, which is in sort of northern KwaZulu-Natal recently, and I was, and it's, although it falls under the auspices or management of the uh, KwaZulu-Natal wildlife, I, it is actually, I believe, a community-owned reserve. 
Yes. Um, that had, so that's one of those sort of reclaimed yeah, lands so exactly. that you're so, talking um, about. Certainly. So post-1994. So even though when you go in there, you look at, I mean, the uniforms and the staff and all that are KZ and wildlife. Yeah. But it is actually part of the income would then go to that local community, a local community trust or something like that. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So okay. what happened post-1994, um, government and um, Derek Kanakom in particular, who came from a land advocacy background, he realized, and there was an organization called Group for Environmental Monitoring, uh, people like Jackie Koch were involved before 1994 um, in working with communities who had aspirations to own conservation land. And the, and the government, uh, when it came to land reform, it was seen as, well, this is an easy situation because you've got government that now owns these reserves, be it a homeland government previously, but now it's a new South African government. So this land, in theory, should be State easier. State-owned. It should be easier to transfer ownership. Um, but it was done under a model which said you shouldn't change the use of the land. So the land would remain as conservation, and then you would jointly manage it with the conservation authority. So that's why you've still got Izimvelo in KZN or Sand Parks in the Kruger Park. They have co-management agreements with the new landowners now who've reclaimed that land. Okay, so there are communities in the Kruger that also own parts of the Kruger, even though you don't see that as, I mean, it's not sort of fenced off as this belongs to this community or this belongs to that community, but they are sort of community-owned sections or that the park itself yeah. is divided into that? Well, very few, actually. Mm. I mean, it's quite an interesting... And this year from is, those very, very rich concessions. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, over half the park was claimed by communities. Um, mm. And the first land claim that was settled in the Kruger Park is the Makuleke community in the Pafuri area, right uh, on northern, the border. Northern exactly. Kruger Park. That's on the border, exactly. So we've been working and, uh, with that community since 2000. Um, and, but what happened, and so they reached an agreement that they would keep the land under conservation and then they had the rights to develop tourism opportunities, which they've done, and they've got partners with the private sector. Camps. Uh, yeah, camps, so high-end high lodges. And we really we support the high-end lodge route because um, your number of people that are employed and the amount of money that is generated there is higher than in a low-end kind of right, opportunity. Sort of self-catering, yeah. standard self-catering. Exactly. Kind of okay. So um, that was um, the model of government, but then in 2008 government changed their mind regarding the Kruger Park. And they took a decision that there would be no more community ownership of the Kruger Park. Crikey. Yeah, so this was an interesting development because everywhere else in the country as a community you could reclaim the land and get oh, ownership. So it was just for the Kruger Park they introduced that restriction? Yes, and what was called an equitable redress model was now um, adopted by, by the cabinet and the departments of land affairs and uh, um, environment. Um, but that has now been challenged. And the African Safari Foundation are working with the Makahani community who've reclaimed the land just south of Makuleke. Uh, the Tulamela heritage site is part of their, um, their land. Um, and they're the recognized claimants. So there's, there's no dispute in the claim. Right. Um, but what government has now offered in this, under this equitable redress model is they will pay the community out for a value of the land, which is a contested issue, or find them alternative land. To be honest, you won't find alternative no. land. 
and equitable redress was is part of the land broader, legislation. Yeah, broader legislation. Yeah, but it yeah. was really, I think, envisaged for if you were going to claim the land under the Colton Centre, you couldn't get ownership of that back, so they would rec- give that back. But, some, yeah. but in our view and in the view of the community, there is nothing stopping government from giving ownership, especially if you want to keep it as conservation. Um, so they are going to go to the land claims court now, and they're going to ask the court to rule whether this is a fair way of dealing with the claims. Because you've got an environment also where governments go into communities and saying, please give us your land, which is in a communal area, but which is of high biodiversity value, we would like to give that protection. We're not going to change the ownership. So there's a contradiction, I think, in the way mm-hmm. it's happened. I think the reasons for this was that government took its decision. The Kruger Park is the jewel. Yeah. It generates, it's the only park which really makes money. Maybe Table Mountain does. Um, but other than that, it generates more money than it consumes. And all other parks generally cost more to run. So hmm. I think um, government saw this as, well, if we now got half the land it's owned by the communities, all, yeah. it's difficult to manage. Um, communities are hard to work with. Uh, it's going to take energy. And what is it going to do for our revenue stream? So I understand from government's perspective um, but I think there's a way to address it, and I think the unilateral decision was not the right thing to mm. do, in my view. So, so I think this year we'll see what's happening. Some community uh, property associations have accepted the equitable redress model, but I'm hearing already now they are concerned that they've already spent the money and we're not, they're worried about how much benefit they're really going to get out of the system. So they're going to have a share in future Kruger Park developments. They'll get 2% of turnover that will be spread amongst those communal property associations once you settle the claim. But the other claimants are sitting back and waiting to see See what will happen. What the president will do. Exactly. Um, I just want to go back a little, as I I do in these uh, discussions, Um, and I have to, I suppose, tell everyone that you and I have known each other. I I was trying to work it out. It's probably a sort of late 80s, something like that, right? When did you Yeah, we were at University of Kozum Natal. I was uh, from 85 to 90. Yeah. And you were quite then involved in the ECC. I mean, I sort of moved in those circles. I'm not sure I was ever an official member, of course, also did not uh, do my military service by hook or by crook. I managed to avoid that. But you were involved in student politics. You were then, um, you worked for an organization called IDASA when you left university. Um, So you were sort of quite a political animal from, from your sort of youth or yeah. late youth. How late, did, how did yeah. that, I mean, were you, were, 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 did you come from a politically sort of aware family or was it no. student No, it wasn't even students. It was actually, um, what happened was, so I grew up on the West Rand of Johannesburg. Uh, my father had one of the first gyms in South Africa. Okay. So I grew up in a very uh, male macho environment, I would say. Uh, I worked at the gym. Um, I... So you were bench pressing from an early age. <laughs> yeah, I was. That's why I avoid gyms now. I'm not very, I'm not very good, great gym person. Um, but I, um, I, I had the good fortune. Yeah, exactly. I had a good, the good fortune to become a Rotary Exchange student. Oh right. Okay. And then I went to Canada, and I am um, like all white South African males at the time. I was conscripted, and my plan was to go be exchange student for a year, and then come back and go, go to, to the, the army. army. That was I. I didn't understand the political nature of uh, of the army. 
I grew up in a very protected environment, white environment. Um, and what happened with me is I played guitar, so I joined the jazz band as uh, in Chilliwack. At the high school. Yeah, at the high school. Chilliwack. Chilliwack in, Chilliwack in, uh, in Canada, uh, just as near Vancouver. Oh, nice. And um, the bass player said, oh, you must be the exchange student from South Africa. Um, you must obviously know about Biko from the Peter Gabriel song. And I pretended I knew, and I, but I had no idea. Shit. Um, and then in the school library was Donald Woods's book about Biko. And I wow. read that and I got very angry. Uh, so I thought I'd, I'd lived a lie. Moment. It was a complete light bulb moment. I thought I'd lived a lie. I had no idea what, and I, just, I was determined to come back and cause as much hassles for the government as possible. Huh. Um, and I, um, I, I remember then giving these speeches because when you leave, leave South Africa, they gave you a bunch of slides to show when you make your rotary exchange speeches. And I would say, this is what I've been told to say, but this is now what I, I believe the reality is. Um, and I, I wanted to come back to Wits because I remember in 1983, they burnt the flag. I had some vague recollection of that, um, but my marks weren't good enough. Um, but I had relatives in Durban, and that's how I ended up in Durban. Okay. And so uh, University of, of then Natal, right. UND, accepted me. And I remember in um, orientation week, I looked for the politics committee. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, that was the start of a long journey. Um, yeah. I then was on the SRC, um, Student Representative Council, yes. um, and I ran the printing press. Which the was Dome newspaper. Well, for Dome, but for but also for other kind for of pamphlets. Your pamphlet things, and you know, mm -hmm. um, then we that had the was UDF. Quite a powerful little machine that exactly, then, wasn't it, yeah. yeah. So after hours, I was printing pamphlets All and kinds of stuff. Um, it became more and more, unfortunately, from the la from the mid eighties into the nineties, there were a lot of people but being killed, and yeah, and you were printing pamphlets for funerals. Uh, for funerals, mm. and then. The people that would bring it, the UDF activists, would say, please come to the funerals. And I'd say, why? And they say, because if there's a white person there, the police, will, yeah, the police will behave themselves more. And there's a witness. So me and black sash ladies would end up going to these funerals every weekend. Mm. Um, and then in 1990, so I was at university really avoiding the army. I was not a great student. I'm, I'm Actually, I'm sad to say I wish I had more, a better degree than I do yeah, have. I think that's my regret as yeah, well, yeah. I have to say. Um, but Idasa then approached me and they said, look, do you want to be a full-time um, violence monitor? Right. So from 1990 up until the election, that's what I did. I did mm. violence mediation, but a lot of it was just helping people access legal services. Right. Um, and, and, and obviously just monitoring the police at those events. So yeah, exactly. Pretty much what the yeah. police and I ended up doing down the Precisely. coast as well. I, I, I would be too scared to do it now. During the elections, when you worked for the IEC, I was working for the uh, National Peace Accord at the time. Um, I've, I've been sort of reflecting on those, those days, you know, we I was talking to Sam Mkukeli, he's uh, just left Bloomberg a report and he was like saying, you know, people saying things are so terrible in this country right now. And they are that, that sort of certain, you know, you can look at the facts and figures. But I mean, those were pretty dark days, weren't they? I mean, yeah, 85 sort yeah. of onwards or the 80s. Well, even I suppose, I mean, have there ever been any light days really up until our, our 1994 elections? If you look at the... Yeah. The, the the legacy of of the Dutch of the British of colonialism of apartheid. I mean, it it's it, it's a nightmare really that I think we don't 
still to this day, even people like you and I who see ourselves as fairly sort of, uh, I don't know, aware or educated or informed or woke, if you want to use that mm. silly word. But it's, 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 uh, it's uh, that, that, that period of the states of emergency of people just getting shot down in the streets no, at, exactly. at, at, at every it turn. Was, it was civil war. People it being was a civil war, really. I mean, you were you know, conscripted. I mean, that's part of that. You mentioned the conscription campaign. Uh, one of the, I think for a lot of people, there was a difference between going and fighting against a red threat in Angola um, as part of the, the Cold War that was happening. The whole um, yeah, exactly. And then in a situation where you're now in, in the townships, maybe um, meeting your children of your domestic worker uh, as a conscript and you were imposing a state of emergency. I think there, obviously apartheid was a violent system, but I think by the time the ni- mid-1980s came, it became a much more overtly violent mm. system. Um, Almost, I would say, a security, security dictatorship. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And in KwaZulu-Natal... Um, you had a situation where the Nkata Freedom Party, um, uh, Mangasutu Butelezi, who was in the homeland system, was being propped up by uh, the National Party. And he's, uh, the, uh, with support for the chiefs, people were being, being said, that, uh, we talked about bodyguards that would be given to the chiefs with weapons. Mm. They were fighting amongst the youth. Um, you know, nearly 1,000 people a year uh, from 1985, we've we're, we're been killed through yeah. p- political violence, yeah. um, and it was called black on black violence, all yeah. kinds of the stuff. But it was really been stoked well, I mean, by the security after forces. The unbanning of the ANC, it was when it really went. I mean, thousands yeah. died, thousands yeah. in that just that exactly. brief period of yeah. between 1990 and 1994. Exactly. I mean, I and think I of mean, some of the leadership that was lost. Um, certainly, KwaZulu Natal, very good young people, um, trade union. Uh, unionists that were were killed, people that maybe could have had a different view, mm. um, and I think we could that civil society that the UDF represented of women's organisations, trade unions, youth organisations, cultural organisations, that leadership was decimated mm. during that time, yeah. and I think we we still live in through some some of the problems some of the we've inherited. Yeah, the consequences mm. I think are, are there still, unfortunately, mm. Mm. but we got through it. You know, by hook or by crook, we got to a point where there was some degree of accommodation and agreement that uh, that way of doing politics, the violence of the, the political situation there was not the right way. It was mm. close. We, we, one of the consequences we live in today is the Ngunyama Land Trust, where the National Party, just before the election, transferred the land under KwaZulu into the name of the king. And that was the bribe to get the IFP into the elections? Yeah, yeah, it was definitely part of it. Mm. Um, and uh, I think there was a stalling tactic on the part of the, the IFP because they didn't want political access into the, into the homelands. So I was the deputy director of monitoring uh, at that time, and I became the liaison between the security forces and the IEC, and we were trying to get access, and yeah. but there was chaos. Ten oh, days before geez. the election, we had to give the majority of people in, Quas, in, in the province access to a voting station. We had to rely on... They, they weren't even sure they'd be able to get to. Exactly. We had to rely on uh, KwaZulu ho- uh, home, homeland officials. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was chaos. Mm. Um, yeah. I remember that whole thing about free political activity. That was the big... Uh, Thing, wasn't it yeah, from yeah. the ANC free political yeah, activity exactly. we need to go wherever we want to go operation access we were taking then, people in caspers yeah you know to make a speech and then get back in the casper and quickly drive out again mm. it was it was not free political activity at all although 
on the day, I do remember just driving out, and we were in an armored vehicle actually at the time because things were still quite. You never know. You, we didn't really know what that day was going to bring. The twenty seventh yeah, of April, yeah, nineteen ninety four, yeah. out in the back of beyond. Sort of, I don't even know how I'd describe it. Sort of inland, one hundred and fifty kilometers from Port Chepstow. Do you mm. know what I mean? Out in the back. Yeah. But it was an incredible sight that every school you passed, there were just queues and queues yes, of people yeah. just standing, yeah. chilled. I don't actually remember seeing that many cops, um, funnily enough, because I suppose they just couldn't be everywhere. Yeah, they were focusing yeah. on, on what they saw as the, the hot zones. But, um, yeah, fantastic, fantastic day. Yeah. So um, you went from, I suppose, in a, in a sort of traditional post-Cold War post-communist, uh, whatever you want to call New World Order, lefty path, you went from politics into the environment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I still consider myself a lefty. Uh, uh, an activist. An activist, an activist, I would say. Um, and how did with that, the social how did, that um, so how did you go from the IEC into... Yeah, so uh, it was, um, so the work at IDASA, a lot of the work we did um, under IDASA, which was the Institute for Democratic Alternatives, was helping civil society talk to government. So we were um, creating forums of people. So we really saw ourselves as facilitators of, of discussion because, for example... The and this was pre-'94. This then. was pre-'94. Yeah. Um, then just after the election, I became part of a consultancy with a friend of mine, Dominic Mitchell, who was in oh, the Dominic. Peace Accord, yeah. and we called ourselves Interface Africa. Oh, and right, okay, yeah. we then facilitated discussion uh, with, with people. So when uh, the railway people wanted to discuss new railway station, they said, okay, well, we'll bring the civic organizations and the youth in so you could do stakeholder engagement. Mm. Um, and, and then one of the issues which came from before 1994 was whether the St. Lucia uh, area should be mined or not. Yes, the Richards Bay Minerals. Yeah, Richards Bay Minerals, exactly. Should they mine that or not? The dunes and all of that. Precisely. Um, and um, it was now an ANC government, um, Derek Hanekom was the Minister of Land Affairs, says, like, we now need to make a decision. Um, there had been a whole lot of commissions before then um, which had ruled in favor of conservation, but it had very much been a, a debate had been conservation and the environment versus mining. There was no involvement of the local people at all. There was no discussion around what are the social impacts of one decision or another. It was very much what's the impact on nature. Um, okay. So... Um, so the there ANC was at least that consideration, but nothing yeah, there about was, the people. There was nothing about the people. So the ANC said, well, now we're under pressure now to do we formalize this decision which was made by this judicial commission or not. And they were looking for a mediator. And someone said, oh, well, there's this guy, Steve Collins. He was a mediator. He can, like, he can mediate this uh, issue. So we were given the contract as Interface Africa now to run a process which involved nature conservation again. It was then uh, KwaZulu, uh, what do they call the Natal Parks Board. Right. George Hughes was, I remember, he was the, the head, and I had to phone him up and say, look, you know, the ANC wants to have this discussion. He said, no, but we won this debate. And I remember saying to him, well, um, Dr. Hughes, that is correct. But, you know, we still got people living in the Dukuduku Forest, and they haven't been involved. And it takes one of them who's angry with the AK-47 to shoot a couple of tourists. And he said, are you threatening? I said, oh, no, I'm painting a scenario. <laughs> you know, we need to involve them. So he said, they got in very begrudgingly. Richards Bay Minerals were very excited when I called them. 
they thought, oh, now this is mm. going to open up the, the opportunity again to have this discussion because we, they really saw themselves as, as being given jobs, etc. Right. Um, and, and then we worked with um, um, other organizations like a, a CROP, which was an organization, an NGO, which worked around the St. Lucia with David Webster and others, Clive Poultney. They were working up with communities up in the north. We involved David them. Webster, who got uh, yeah, you, assassinated. So he was working in um, that area, Cozy Bay area, right. uh, before with those communities. Um, so we got leadership from those communities, and we brought them into one big workshop. Um, and we had the debate. And I remember Jacob Zuma was then the minister of the, um, the environment, economy. He was like for the KZN, MEC, right, yeah, MEC yeah, for yes, uh, economic yeah. affairs. Yeah. And we booked through our company, we booked the lodging in, in St. Lucia, and they were very upset when all these black people started coming to take over. No, to, to, we to said, <laughs> yeah, to, 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 to stay, stay there the, overnight the during the process. Yeah. Um, and we commissioned a series of papers, which we presented now to the stakeholders which included the mine, environment, community, and the new provincial government. And they looked at uh, uh, mining, we looked at um, different land uses. Um, tourism was one. Um, agriculture was another. Forestry, there's a lot of forestry in the area, so that was mm -hmm. another one. Mm -hmm. And then we did a hydrological study because that was a big issue. What is the impact on the water, water once you water take table. away the dunes and you put them back? And um, I must say, up, there was a certain point the communities came in that were very anti-conservation because they had a well, bad they history. Know what it was. Well, they had just had like had hardship. Yeah, the they'd been chased away. In the parks was board, the yeah, enemy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and when we put this question to mining company and to conservation, we said there are likely to be some kind of land restitution process. What would you say if now the community owns the dunes? Um, Will you be prepared to share the benefits? Conservation said, yes, we would. And the mining company arrogantly said, these are our rights. The mineral rights are ours. We don't need to share them. And I saw the community shift their position. Um, so we then... Uh, was that in a public forum? It was, well, it was in this forum. In yeah, the workshop. In the workshop, yeah. yeah, yeah. We were all in this nice venue in St. Lucia. I think it's still there, an auditorium. Uh, and... I saw the community shift their position um, in that. And then we then wrote a report to government. We said, look, in our view... Um, this is Interface. As this interface. is Interface Africa, but with some of the other consultants like Crop that were involved, we said, um, we think create a more inclusive um, conservation-based um, situation, which is why it's called the Isimangalusu Wetland Authority. Because it was yeah. an authority which represented the local governments and others. That's what it's called today. It's called today, Isimangalisa mm -hmm. Wetland Authority. It was then called, the, initially it was called the St. Lucia Wetland Authority. They changed right, their names. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but make it more inclusive and let's give ecotourism a chance to become more inclusive of the community, create more and jobs. More revenue generating. And more revenue generating. I must say, um, in retrospect now, this was 1995. You know, it's like a, it's a long time, 25 years or so now. Um, we, we haven't delivered. The Wetland Authority has not delivered on the community beneficiation model. Um, the land claims have not been settled well. Mm. Um, we, as what, the African what, Safari Foundation, we work with the Benghazi community, and 
we still haven't developed their lodge, which has been talked about for 10, 15 years. Um, what, is, what, is the pro what are the holdups? I think um, the Wetland Authority has been very good on the conservation front, and they've been very good at rehabilitating the environment, but they've been not very good at involving the community. Um, even that was one of the reasons. Even that was one of the up. reasons, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, uh, hmm. maybe that's going to change now. You know, I think there's... Um, are they, do you find that there... I mean, you say every community is different. Um, do you... But are there some common issues? I mean, I'm thinking of the sort of politics of the community themselves and sort of leadership issues, et cetera, et cetera. Are those, would that be one of the common sort of issues or one of the common considerations that you, that you, that you have to, to take, to bear in mind when you are dealing with these yeah. community organizations? Yeah, certainly. Because I they, mean, they, they can't, they're, they're not as perhaps stable or as, they're very instable, as yeah. aware or yeah. even informed as, as you would... Yeah, they hope. don't have the capacity to engage with these mm. conservation authorities that I think inherently are conservative. Yeah. By conservative, I don't mean politically, I just mean that they... Don't like they, change. They don't like change. They want to restore the land to what they see as this pristine nature. Never mind the fact that there were always people living in these systems. Mm. So they are anti-development as, as a whole. They are anti... Um, the less tourists that are there, they can, the better. So they begrudgingly will allow development to happen if it's seen as environmentally. They go through these EIA processes, etc. But they they're not keen on, for example, communities off taking animals, hunting animals. Um, they are not keen on harvesting things. You know, they want to try and reduce that as much as possible, mm. and that puts pressure on the community leadership now, who've been elected to represent to them in the discussion, something. to deliver something to a very needy community, which has become more and more needy, has become bigger over time. Yeah. Um, but so that was my first environmental job, mm. and then that led to doing work in the Lesotho Highlands around trying to, to manage the catchment where communities of are grazing animals because if you don't manage the catchment then the water uh, starts being reduced um so that was part water of the suit of water off. exactly erosion exactly erosion. less land for grazing e exactly so um and slowly but surely i got involved more and more i think that's what happens as a consultant people see you as specializing in a particular area um and now 20 odd years later i find myself uh, really involved more and more in this. Uh, there was never a plan. I feel I kind of bumbled along one thing to the next. Um, but I'm I think my, my, my friends are very jealous because I spend a lot of time in nature reserves yeah, and in these beautiful, beautiful areas. Yeah, yeah. So I feel very fortunate um, mm. to do this work. I want to touch on just um, two of the projects that I know you've been um, involved with, and I hope they'll sort of lead us then to this discussion, sort of broader discussion I want to have around the food, energy, water nexus, which I've only actually discovered is something uh, I was reading of this World Wildlife Fund report from 2014, specifically around mm. sustainability and the challenges of this food, energy, water nexus in South Africa. It's quite fascinating. I might even drop in a couple of statistics. But the two projects I want to talk about are you've been working on some kind of water protection initiative in Marico. So I want you to mm. just uh, talk a little bit around that and, and bring us into the sort of water space. Yes. And then you also were involved in a wind farm project up in Kenya, yeah. which has been recognized now as a model of that sort of community uh, 
business uh, state um, project uh, model partnership. Yeah. partnership. Mm. Um, and I want to talk a little bit there about sort of how you dealt with all of the part, all the stakeholders, as we say, but also sort of then lead us into discussion a little bit about wind power and its potential in the subcontinents. But if sure. we maybe okay. just start with the water and the Kruat Mariko then, what, what yeah. was that all about? So um, in Kruat Mariko... Um, Which is in, is that northern? It's province? northwest. 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 It's on the way um, between uh, Rustenburg and the Botswana border. Right. Um, it's on uh, the way to Madikwe, which is a very exactly. nice... Exactly. Yeah, very community. nice. Yeah, yeah. And we've worked with those community um, um, lodges in Madikwe. So in Kruat Mariko, uh, you've got a place called Die Oog, uh, which was uh, Herman Charles Bosman wrote about. Uh, and it's a, it's a spring. It's a, a dolom, what's called the Dolomite Spring. You've got water bubbling up year-round. It Some is the, the source. It is the source of, of uh, regarded as a source of the Limpopo. So, mm. um, so this was part of a, a USAID-funded project. The Limpopo? Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. So okay. there, there are ma- many, many things, but it's, it's regarded as the most western, southern part of the, of the, Limp- of the Limpopo River. Huh. Um, so um, there was a USAID had a project, project called Resilum, which I worked with, which was resilience in the Limpopo River Basin. And it was dealing with the Limpopo River Basin, which includes uh, South Africa. Um, where we're sitting in Johannesburg is really the, the southernmost part of the basin. Um, yeah, this, this ridge, the Johannesburg Ridge, the rain that falls north of us goes to, into the Limpopo. To the south, it goes into the orange system. So we're at, mm-hmm. really at the edge. Here. Um, but it includes um, parts of Botswana, the eastern part of Botswana, southern part of Zimbabwe, and then into Mozambique. So that's the Limpopo River Basin, and the, it eventually exits at Shai Shai in Mozambique into the sea. Um, so uh, we identified with the Department of Environmental Affairs and some local people in Mariko that um, there was a need to somehow protect this clean water because it's regarded as some of the cleanest water in South Africa, and we've got a highly polluted um, river basin in the Limpopo. Um, so whatever water we got that's clean, we need to look after it. Um, we've already, just the demands on the water in the Limpopo, we're yeah. using everything already. Well, um, what is it, 98% of South Africa's water is already allocated, it's as allocated. they say. Exactly, yeah. So, so, so the more you take, you start taking out now, you get into what's called the environmental reserve, which means you, you're now taking out the river's ability to actually even sustain the local environment completely. Once and there's also it. predictions, of course, that we'll have a shortfall quite soon, uh, 1.7% apparently by 2025. Yeah, be- so because we're climate running change. out of yeah. water in Exactly. This climate change is um, making us drier, and we've got increasing demand. So, we, so that's a problem. What, 25% increase in population since Ex- 2009? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So you've got increasing demand, dwindling supply. So we were trying to find ways to protect whatever clean water we got. So with the, with the Department of Environmental Affairs and local people, um, we helped them develop an application for what's called a man and biosphere um, recognition. Under UNESCO, um, there is a, what's called a man and biosphere program, which basically zones p- parts of your area as highly protected and then um, other areas as transition zones and... It basically accepts human beings as part of it. So it's not a the old way of doing conservation, which says you put a fence and you keep everybody out. It's this is saying to balance that interaction exactly. between man, well, population, and the nature. Exactly. Yeah. So environment it lives. Exactly. And the, the, the and, and I think it recognizes that the earth is a biosphere. 
And then you need to understand what, the, what we can regenerate and what we can't regenerate. And it tries to, to manage the land use in that, in that way. So we supported, and there now is uh, the biosphere, uh, Mariko Biosphere Reserve is recognized by UNESCO uh, last year. Um, it also now includes so the Malopo like sort of an, uh, environmental world heritage sites. If I exactly, could no, that, that's that a very way. good way to describe it. Exactly, precisely that. So um, the area now is not just Hrut Mariko, it also includes, includes the Malopo Eye, which is a bit further south and west. And Malopo Uch. Yeah, Malopo Uch, yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's now part of the Biosphere Reserve. Um, and we're now working with um, the, the committee that's now been elected of NGOs and civil society in that area and government in the area to say, okay, now you've got this designation, what does it mean? Um, it means rehabilitating land that needs to be rehabilitated. It means monitoring what happens with the water. Um, now, the, one of the reasons that is actually a key um, bit of water is that Botswana and Gaborone in particular has access to that water hmm. um, through a dam um, which is just north of the, the N4, which goes there, and which is fed by the Groot Mariko uh, River, which is clean until it hits the crocodile. So the Groot Mariko hits the crocodile river, and then all this waste not from so Gauteng, like, uh, no, no, not nice, exactly. Um, but up until then, it's pretty clean. And there is a, a channel and a pipeline which now links Botswana to that source of water. So a few, three or four years ago, Botswana was facing the same crisis as Cape Town and hmm. Gaborone. They were hit to go heading for day zero a lot faster. Um, fortunately, they've had good rains now, so they're fine. But um, So this program really looks at transboundary water, which is what we're doing now. I'm now working on another program, which is called Resilient Waters, which is dealing with the Okavango and the Limpopo basins. And it's trying to get countries in SADC to work much better on how do you manage water, which is a... Uh, international Conserve resource. Conserve it and share it. Conserve it and share it, yeah, exactly, rather than just keep it for yourself. And people talk about wars around water, mm. um, which is now we're trying to prevent. And you mentioned the food, energy, water nexus because we need water for food. Mm. We need it for energy. Uh, we need it for, for our way we live basic our lives. Survival. The basic survival. And we need to be understanding what's available, what the demand is, and how we, how we can share it. Because... Mm. It, it impacts on everything. It's not just okay. You can't once you don't have water, you don't have food, you don't have energy, you don't uh, the way we live out. You don't have in, in, industrial development. It's sure. we we basically die without it. And yeah. so you know, I think globally now it's accepted that we need to start um, developing these transboundary water agreements. Um, so you have something called Limcom, which is a basin, river basin commission, which deals with the Limpopo basin with those four countries, and there's one called Okacom which deals with the Okavango River Basin, which is Angola, Botswana, uh, Namibia, and Zambia. And they have got an established working relationship, and okay. they, they are monitoring the amount of water that's being produced. Um, we're going to try and work with the, the people in the, uh, the highlands in Angola, Quito Kornivali, uh, like oh, you, yes, I, I managed, managed to avoid that. going to there. As a, I hope to now go there, maybe on a bit more of a peaceful mission about now how do we improve people's lives in the highlands mm. of Angola so that they are not um, deforesting the area. Because if you deforest that area, you can have less water coming into the Okavango mm. Basin. Mm. Um, yes, Quito Conavale was the site of a massive battle back in the uh, late, mid-late 1980s, the South African 
military and the Angolan military amongst other parties. I think there were more militaries involved than we perhaps realized. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so that's interesting. I suppose that's encouraging that you do at least have at a high level this kind of cooperation. I, I do feel, I do have some concern about the sort of basic individual's awareness of the need to conserve water mm. in particular. I mean, I think Cape Town obviously was a, was a shock to many, and I'd, I'd like to think that in our household, our humble abode here in Kilani, um, my wife and I do practice sort of water conservation to the extent that we can, you know, short showers and not sort of running the tap mm. when, you, when you're doing the washing up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, d what is your sense of just where we are as a general population in terms of sort of environmental awareness at a sort of broad macro level and particularly on water conservation in, at, at, a, at a household level? I think we're very unaware. Uh, and... So, for example, uh, if we not many of us are aware about how much water it takes to produce our food, mm. how many liters it takes, uh, a thousand liters of water for a liter of milk yeah. before it leaves the farm. Exactly, and that's because of all the growing of the grass that's required for those dairy cattle. Uh, One thousand six hundred liters of water for a loaf of bread. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, we don't we don't realize that. So we think, okay, let's conserve water, and we're very good. So we don't flush, and we, we have mm. to flush. We have mm. short showers. That is that is good. That's just the pure water as a human being using. But you need to. Yeah. You, I think the awareness of beyond my individual interaction with water, we are very unaware of how much water goes into even the making of of cloth, the making of jeans. Mm. Um, there's yeah. a huge amount of water that. Mm. We, we need to find ways. I think ultimately we all need to reduce what we consume. Um, and if we do that, that will have an impact on the, uh, on the amount of water that's mm. available, mm. certainly. Then, of course, we need to think about how we pollute the existing water we've got. So the Vaal River is in a very sorry state right now. Um, the state, unfortunately, in South Africa has become the biggest polluter of water. At one stage it was the mines. I think it's now the state. And that's because... Mm municipalities are not managing their the sewage work. Yeah. We put a lot more people on the system, or flushing, uh, flushing system, but we haven't not maintained processing. and we haven't increased the amount of capacity where that goes to, which is the sewage works. So we are discharging raw sewage into the, into the Vaal River right now, mm. which now we have to clean up in Johannesburg before we drink it. Um, and we need to, to find a way that we deal with that problem because if we can't uh, manage our existing water, you know, and so 25 years ago when I started this kind of work, we didn't, well, we knew about climate change, but we didn't know about the implications. Now we know climate change in Southern Africa is going to mean less rainfall hmm. in, as, as a whole. It's going to be more catastrophic kind of weather events, but we're going to in general have less rainfall. Um, our agriculture systems have to become we should not be spraying like we, you, you drive, and I still get, we've seen these big irrigation schemes. We should wheels. That, yeah, those are highly, especially if you're doing it during the day. Hmm. You're spraying the stuff, it's mostly evaporating. Um, we need to be doing, and there are systems which use a lot less water per cabbage, per lettuce, hmm. per tomato. Those little drip water, drip, drip systems. Yeah, well, those are, that's where we should be going. Hmm. Um, and, and we should also be looking at a static level. And we should be developing and saying, where's the water actually? 
And it really is, if you have a look at it, it's in northern Mozambique and southern Angola. That's where the, the water is going to be. It's for going this to be, region. Yeah, for this region. And we should be developing, you talk about the energy nexus, we should be developing roads and energy. We need energy for farming infrastructure. That's where we should be growing our food in the long term. Uh, we shouldn't be growing it in the northwest, mm. which is in drought. And it's going to be more and more in drought. Um, we are not a great land for agriculture, to be honest. So we're going to end up importing yes, more and more of our food. Read that only 13% of South Africa's land is arable, and only 3% of that 13% is actually sort of good quality land for growing stuff on. It's yeah. bizarre. It's bizarre, you know. And we see ourselves as a farming nation, but we yeah. actually are not. You know, it's a it's a misnomer we grew up with, I think. Hmm. Um, and. So we need to find a way... For sheep more than for mealies. Yeah, maybe goats, actually. Yeah. <laughs> maybe goats. And, uh, you know, I, I saw an amazing project which was, is now starting to look at fish farming uh, and trying to find a way that we produce protein from fish. And we farm fish. It's a lot more effective on water and greenhouse gas production mm. than, than cattle and beef. Mm. And it produces good quality protein. And it uses less water. As ironic, you think, well, if it's fish, it should use a lot more water, but it actually mm. doesn't. Mm. You know, it's counterintuitive in a way. Yeah. Um, and we should be doing those kind of projects, which are almost industrial-scale um, farming, farming. Because, because we've decimated the seas. The amount of fish we get out of the sea is declining and declining. Mm. But the demand for fish protein is increasing again. Mm. So we've got, once again, uh, a, a train a smash collision. about to a collision about to happen. Mm. And mm. Um, we... So... But there are people that have solutions, which is nice. I'm, I mean, I'm continually amazed by the techni technological innovation, mm. um, the different ways. We talk about climate-smart agriculture now um, as a way of using less water, putting nutrients back into the soil. Um, there are ways we can do it. But human beings at an individual level, at an industrial level, are very slow to change. Mm -hmm. Maybe when the crisis happens, like in Cape Town, people change their ways. They mm. show that the people could do it. Mm. And, and apparently they are mostly sticking, sticking to, that, to that, which behavior. is great. It's brilliant. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about the wind farm project in, in Kenya then, just as a sort of mm. model of community uh, stakeholder management and, and uh, talk a little bit then about sustainable wind as a sort of sustainable energy solution for so South Africa or Southern Africa. Yeah, so, um, so I got drawn into this project um, through a conversation with the... Uh, Mutual friend of ours, actually, in a, in a bar. And he said, what do you do? I said, no, I work on um, uh, benefit, beneficiation models. I help communities benefit, mostly oh, from tourism. Nick. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. Nick, uh, Nick Holcroft. And, he worked uh, at the IFC. At the exactly. Time. So you said, oh, well, the IFC have got this project. Maybe when we're looking for some people, maybe you can tender for, for some work, which I did. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get the contract to look at a new wind farm being developed in Kajado County in uh, – uh, Kenya, just south of Nairobi, um, and called Kipeto, which was the name of the local area. And it was a wind farm on Maasai land. So um, in, in uh, Kenya, you've got uh, Maasai areas, uh, people have got individuals own parcels of land. It's, you may see it as communal, but it's actually quite individuals parceled up. This family owns this piece of land, etc. So they had identified this area as an area of high wind potential and they'd done what they called the resource evaluation and they'd identified it who, who'd done that the government um well it the was most it was it was, it was it was no it was actually it wasn't the government it was some private individuals in in kenya huh. um and there were other wind farms so they had um and them with the i the ifc 
and General Electric, I think, initially were one of the original investors. They got together and they did these studies and they then said, okay, well, we want to put so many wind farms on these individual parcels of land, and they, which meant somehow people would have to move, but mostly they wouldn't have to move, but they were going to lease the land where the wind farm would be, and individuals were going to get paid a certain amount of money. Um, and they wanted somebody to come and help them design a system which would maximize the return and the benefit to the community. So that's what I did. I came in as a consultant to help them design that. And we did things like we said, okay, let's design a community development plan before we actually do the wind farm. So the, we had a lot of intensive discussion with the community members about what do they want to do, what kind of life do they see for themselves. Um, the schools were very inadequate, so they said, no, we want to increase uh, our education of people, our, our young people. We want them to, we know they're not going to live off the land forever. We want them to get good jobs. Uh, I think Kenyans are very, um, in, uh, very good at seeing a future economy which is more data-driven. They, mm. they, they got M-Pesa kind of Fourth systems. Industrial yeah, yeah, they are there. Focus. They're going there. So they want yeah. their children to be able to educate it. They see a livelihood which is not just rural, but urban as well. So, um, so, there was uh, so we developed a plan with the with the community. We had a lot of intensive engagement. There were community liaison officers that were employed early on in the program, that were very engaging about where the wind farms were going to be. So people were very clear um, about what the how the world was going to change. That there would be now these turbines um, on on the land, and it was going to have a site. The world when you looked at the land, it was going to be different. Um, and what your revenue streams are going to be. Um, and I think we talked a lot about what does it mean now to have that cash flow in a community? Does it increase alcoholism? Does it increase mm. um, people start moving in and selling drugs? Because now there's now more money. cash, more money. So we needed, we started talking about that early on, before the money came. Start, and money will, well, it hasn't come yet. It has come to a certain degree now. Um, but I must commend the developers because the developers were also very open to giving a percentage share to the community to a trust which was going to, is going to be established um, and gave equity in the venture to the community so it was much more than a charitable thing mm. that they were doing they said in the long term the community is going to get more and more ownership of this as it as it develops as it rolls out as yeah. it rolls out and mm. the investors the IFC have got global standards which they wanted to apply now um, and I think it was a combination of things which, uh, as you said, has become a best case study. And I, I didn't even know that. And uh, when I read the case study, it was because they said there was one wind farm which was not in the news mm. because there were no protests. Mm. There was no burning of vehicles. There, was no, um, there were no problems. Which had been the case. Which in had the been in many of the other, most, huh. nearly every other wind farm project Jeepers, in Kenya. Okay. So... So is, is that is that quite a significant? Is that a sort of obviously? Um, I mean, you, you read about a lot of these sort of twenty twenty visions that countries have. I mean, we've got our NDP is that twenty thirty? I think. Yeah, but, yes. You know, there's Kigali twenty twenty. Is Kenya? I think also has a similar kind of, mm. sort of all round uh, vision and yes. the shift then to sustainable energy sources or getting more and more sustainable energy into the power grid is one of the sort of aims or falls falls under that that vision yes well the energy provision is but i think also more than that is 
uh, there's much more awareness about how is developing this, how is it going to meet the sustainable development goals? So what is mm. the impact on, on the human environment? What is the impact on the, on the environment and animals and biodiversity? That's much more now part of the framing about how you develop. Mm. So when you have a look at wind, you start saying, well, it has a good impact because you now don't have pollutants which are being created by uh, a coal-based energy production, for example. Um, and what and now the, and the, and in South Africa, when we, we started doing these renewable energy projects, there were very explicit um, part of your uh, uh, bid to um, the, uh, the IPP process, uh, to project was how much are you going to spend on socioeconomic development? Um, how a community trust needs to be established? Um, how are you going to integrate into the local development plan, into the national development plan? And I'm currently working um, on five wind farms in South Africa where we try and we're developing a community development strategy for them so that they can look back in 20 years' time and say, this is our legacy. They're often in working in, in, the, in the Northern Cape and in the Eastern Cape uh, in South Africa, very small communities but very impoverished communities. Mm. And how can we now take the, their investment in what we call community investment and how are we going to meet the National Development Plan program? So it's more than just the energy you're providing, it's how you're doing it. Um, there's a framework now globally called uh, the Initiative for Climate Action Transparency. So, and what it's about is when you are moving towards a re more renewable energy base, how are you doing it? Um, we need transparency around that. How are you not just ticking off the greenhouse gas reductions? Mm, carbon uh, emissions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what you call mitigation, we are, we're, now, we're not doing that kind of uh, um, in, uh, fossil fuel, carbon dioxide, methane um, producing stuff. We are now meeting the sustainable development goals, the human development goals in X, Y, and Z ways. So companies are being forced to think about that now, um, which 30 years ago was, was not there. We now have globally accepted protocols around involving indigenous communities in their own development. Um, that's been signed off by the UN. Enough, enough countries have agreed to that. So there's in, a prior informed consent is the part of way of... So these renewable energy projects are coming into a different world than 40 years ago, where that, yeah. that would not have been considered. Mm. Um, where do you uh, see then the South African government's policies in terms of sustainable energy transfer? Or what am I saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, c considering that we have a, 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 an, a an economy that is. Uh, reliant 86% I think on coal right mm. now um, how do you even start to tackle that problem and is, 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 is the, are the policies in place for a, a sort of massive transference which is going to be required one way or the other to wind or solar or biogas for yeah, example yeah, yeah. as alternative sustainable energy sources i mean i, see I, th Germany. I think i think the vision and the vision is there i think the uh, the the policies are there i think one of the the issues that africa as a whole is facing is how do you um develop your economy um in a non in, the, in a way that's different from the way the west developed so we are not going to be able to um 
uh, get this this quick and easy, easy energy. It was and it was certainly wasn't clean energy, but the rest of the world developed in a way which was highly uh, polluting. It was highly um, carbon dioxide intensive. Um, so we have to have an alternative development path. And I think um, South Africa and the rest of the developing world is saying, um, yes, we're going to transition, but we need to, we need a we bit of a gap. Yeah, yeah. We, we need we need a way. Now, one of the issues that South Africa I think faces compared to some other countries is we've developed um, economy on an extractive coal-based thing, and we need to and our jobs have mostly been around that. And we need so the big issue around ESCOM is well, if we move away from coal base, what about the jobs mm. um, that are now based on extracting coal? And it's a, and we need to find ways in which we help those communities now move towards a different a different in, in, a, a economy. Um, mm. I was very encouraged to see, uh, and the policies I think support it actually. I, I think we're very good on policies. It's how we implement these things that are the part of the problem. Mm. And um, the, but I saw a communal property association that comes from one of the coal mining areas, um, and they now own land, and they're saying, well, we want to do solar as a community. We want to start producing solar energy and uh, on our land. Sell it to the grid. And, and sell it to the grid mm. and use that for, to develop our beneficiaries. Um, we want to train our people in how to, to do, make solar panels into right. um so yeah. i think that's what we've got to that's do it's kind of progressive yeah. Sort yeah, of way yeah. of looking at so it, you know, to see it as an opportunity this shift and not as a threat exactly and that's the that's exactly what we've got to move towards I, I saw i mean you know they talk about this green new deal in the united mm. states mm. and I, i'm not I, I don't really have all the, the the details but it's very much a sort of transition of the economy to sustainable energy and and, yeah. and that kind of thing but automatically now I see the massive, the, the major sort of trade union organizations in the United States immediately come out against it because yeah. they just see it as a threat. And I think... But, you're not, but, 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 mean, but they're not costing in, for example, the, the human costs around the number sure. of people that die from the pollution that's there. And what's actually making this transition happen is the economics have changed. Yeah. It's got to a point where it's cheaper to do a solar or a wind farm than it is from a coal-based production. Right. So that's, that is, that is, that is what's driving. Yeah. That is what's driving things. It's not. And it will a, and continue it will, to. Yeah. yeah, and it will continue, and it'll get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So mm. I think that's what's driving things more than the policy framework. If mm. anything, the policy framework is holding things back because the coal industry is still being subsidised a lot more than any of the renewables. The renewables are doing it. Um, despite the subsidization. So if you took away the subsidies that are currently going into fossil fuels... Mm. Is that it, in it, South Africa in, as well? in South Africa, worldwide. Worldwide. Mm. The fossil fuel industry is highly subsidized mm. in what, many, cheap, many ways. Cheap energy. Yeah. Cheap mm. energy. They get like all these um, tax breaks, etc. Mm. And of course, we as taxpayers are bearing the cost through increased health bills that we're having to pay, the environmental cleanups that we have to do, the government acid, is subsidizing acid that. Mine acid yeah, no, exactly. We're, so it's like a, we, we don't factor that into the, the things that are happening, whereas the, re, the renewable energy is not, it doesn't have those um, negative consequences. Mm. Um, but we are asking the private sector to drive it, to take the risk. Um, the, the policies at the moment are only what they're doing is they're giving these offtake agreements, which say we'll guarantee a certain price over 20 years 
that then enables you as a private if sector. If you start a wind farm. If you start a wind farm, etc. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to be positive in all of this, but it is pretty <laughs> drastic. It I can mean, be the depressing. problems yeah, that yeah. we, you know, this whole the 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 what is it the IPCC report about uh, the fact that I mean, are we all going to die by 2050 or something like that? Well, you and I probably because we're old, but uh, but our children, hopefully not. You know this. Um, it's coming Friday. I'm taking my. You going to the school demonstration? I'm taking my daughter to the school demonstration. Um, mm. I think uh, they, uh, the young people, are finding a way. And I, mean, I think the, the uh, thing is, I mean, it's generally accepted now that the two degree sort of increase in global temperature is we're not going to avoid that. Yeah. So now I was reading somewhere this this I forget where it was now. Some guy saying, well, let, let, let's try and at least keep it below four, mm. and we can, maybe we've got a chance, but. Um, you know, we th there's okay. You you're using less plastic or you're eating less meat. Uh, for me, it it seems that we need a, a really drastic rethink of how we live. Yes. Yeah. And uh, how do, I mean, what do you see the the, the well, potential uh, yeah. for that to to happen? Because humans are, it seems, quite selfish. Mm. Well, I think um, in a way. The, uh, that and self, I include myself. Yeah, yeah, in no, that. Of course, yeah, here yeah, I'm yeah. sitting. The light is on. We've. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's uh, a lot of humans are going to find it's going to be very hard to avoid the reality, for example, of sea level rise. So immediately, it's going to become apparent. This is very good up to now to externalize the problem, and saying, "Well, okay, we're able to go and buy our groceries. We, we we're not growing our own food, Turn and now it doesn't work. And the water, you know, the water comes, but when it stops coming." all of a sudden you start really thinking about, okay, what is my contribution to the problem? When, when, you, when your, your house gets flooded on a regular basis, you start thinking, okay, what is the implications of this? Um, so hopefully, um, you know, I, I, I've been amazed by how quick, for example, plastic pollution, which I think is it's bad, but it's not the biggest problem no, in the world. No. Um, biodiversity loss is a much bigger problem. Um, because All the insects that are yeah dying. yeah the insects you don't have pollinators you don't have food you know you, you, you the, the the whole imp it's like it's got so much imp uh, impacts but I think I've been amazed at how aware people have become very fast I think it's about the internet it's about how fast you can spread messages and I think once you're able to give people practical solutions to to the way things work so for example if we we said okay it's all good and well we're not going to have plastic but now we're going to Start forcing shops to say a certain amount of your goods need to be in glass. Um, if you are if you sell plastic, you are going to now pay for it, um, and we're going to increase the price. So I was I was hearing the other day, um, taxes on cigarettes and alcohol actually do make a difference. Hmm. Um, people are reducing um, their consumption, which is having a health impact. So if we started building once again the economic cost into this is what it is, people will move, especially, and, and then all of a sudden, to make things in glass starts becoming competitive. All of a sudden, to recycle as a rather than throw away becomes competitive. So I think, yeah, it, but it takes a will and it takes um, countries biting the bullet and saying this is what we're going to do. It's going to be hard for our people. Our politicians don't want like doing unpopular things, mm. but sometimes they do. They put up uh, toll roads, highly unpopular. Why? To pay for the roads, they say. 
So if we, if we need to pay for the roads, we need to pay for the plastic pollution as well. So let's put a cost on it. But it's because it's been cheap, it's become so ambiguous everywhere. Mm. But maybe if it's not, bamboo straws start becoming com competitive. Uh, metal straws. So I think that's what, that's what it takes. But it takes, it takes a crisis. It takes us waking up and not uh, – politicians, unfortunately, live five years by five years. But mm. look how fast 30 years go by. We're going to be at 2050 pretty soon. And, um, I, and I think that's maybe the, the kind of visionary leadership we need. We need leadership that's prepared to be unpopular um, because they know it's the right thing to do. Um, and we need to um, change our urban environments. Um, I, I'm actually in support of urbanization. I think urbanization is a good thing because we can supply goods and services to people Quickly in a much easier. more and a much more efficient way. Mm. Um, then, and, and we need to find ways that we grow food in the urban environment because then you don't have to transport it. We need to uh, have transport systems which allow people to move very quickly in the urban environment. We need to allow people to do meetings via Skype as opposed to flying them everywhere. Well, so there man. are, the, yeah. the, the answers are there. There's a, a great uh, website called drawdown.org. It gives you a hundred solutions to climate change, and it talks about things. Educating women and children is one of the most important things we can do. It's in the top ten because then we reduce the amount of kids we're having, and that will immediately re reduce demand. Africa is going to go through this youth bulge. It's one of our youth, it's one place in the world where we are still growing as a population. The rest of the world is decreasing. So then that whole thing we're talking about, demand versus supply, starts getting changed. So, so I, think, I, I think we can do things, you know, involve indigenous people in decisions. Um, in, in, in increase education of women is one of the best things we can do. So we can do it. Um, we just got to do the, um, some of the unpopular things as well. Steve, thanks a lot, eh? That was a good chat. You're very welcome. It's been fun. Good stuff. Okay. Thanks again, Steve, for jumping in at short notice. I appreciate that. Um, I hope you listening at home enjoyed, or wherever you're listening, I hope you enjoyed that chat. It was, for me, quite an insight into... I mean, I suppose I consider myself fairly well informed about sort of the challenges facing our environment, um, global warming. I suppose we have a bit of that, you know, and don't use plastic and eat meat, eat less meat, et cetera, et cetera. But I hope you got some insight into the challenges we are facing. I didn't want to bombard you all with facts and figures, but I do hope you got a sense of how fragile our food, energy, water nexus is here in South Africa. We really are right on the margins of that, that nexus, the food, energy, water nexus here in South Africa, and it's going to take a really massive behavioral, societal behavioral change, as well as, I think, really quite substantial technological innovation, among other things. I mean, there's a whole, we could, you know, there was many other things we didn't get to talk about, the very nature basis of our economic system, and perhaps how that needs to change as well if we're going to uh, survive um, as humans on this planet. Voices from SA is hosted on Audioboom. You can also subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. <laughs>